So, Mark. Yes. I want to talk about animal sidekicks. Okay. They are very common in animation. Very. Why do you think that is? Because you have to write fewer lines and leave it to the animators to do the work. That is a good point. My theory was kids like animals. A lot of animation is targeted at kids. Here's a way to throw an animal into your movie. I think that's the real answer. And maybe sell some toys as a bonus. Yeah, kids just love animals. They do. Why do you think that is? Because they're the best and much better than people generally. How so? I don't feel like getting too political right now, but you know, animals are not currently destroying the planet as fast as humans are. Hard to argue with that. Do you have a favorite animal sidekick? Yes. It could be animated or live action. I love the cricket from Mulan. Oh, okay. It's a very happy-go-lucky animal sidekick who survives devastating war, is a gift from her grandmother who is maybe one of the best Disney characters, and is also a typewriter. And it was really funny to watch this little cricket write Chinese characters after I'd started learning Chinese. Oh, so you felt a kinship with the cricket. Yeah, that's me. I wish I could just ride around in a little cage and do nothing all day. That's what a car is. It is. Cars are just a cage of the man. Deep. I thought of Zazu from The Lion King, the bureaucratic toucan. Or, no, what is he? Is he a hornbill? I think he's a hornbill, yeah. Yeah. Voiced by Mr. Bean himself. Exactly. He's wonderful. I have nothing bad to say about Zazu. He just wants everything to go very smoothly and is constantly frustrated by the capriciousness of children. Aren't we all? Also, that sounds like something you could definitely relate to in your job. I don't know what you are talking about. (laughs) Frustrated with the capriciousness of children could be a bumper sticker for you. What about you? Do you have a favorite animal sidekick? Well, I too am also frustrated by the capriciousness of children in my daily job. Um, I enjoy the animals in Moana. Oh, okay. Do you have a preference between the two? Well, I love Pua because he is so stinking cute. and he remind- He's a little pig, right? Yeah. He reminds me of my dog who is a pug, but he's hardly in the movie. But Hey Hey, the really idiotic rooster. The like chicken thing voiced by Alan Tudyk? Yes. That's the one. He's just so funny. Like how he's always walking off the boat and gets himself eaten several times and regurgitated. He's pretty hilarious. Moana has like a lot of characters that feel designed for plushes. Oh, absolutely. Because you got the two of them. You've also got the Kakamura, the coconut demons. And they're pretty awesome too. They're weird. I don't understand their deal. I think they're adorable personally. They were so out of the blue. And they don't really do anything. Coconut demons show up. Coconut demons leave. And that was like 10 minutes of the movie. I thought they were awesome, personally. But yes, I think a lot of the characters in Moana were designed specifically for merchandising. Which is a shame, in a way, because I think that movie is really strong, but is somewhat undone by other masters. I think it's got some DreamWorksy jokes. I've talked about that on the show before. Yeah. The Twitter joke is a menace. Yeah, it really knocked that movie down a few pegs for me, that one joke. But besides that, it's great. I mean, that's... A musical where you come out really feeling the impact of the songs in terms of being the good kind of earworm and also really advancing and deepening story and characters. Definitely. Agreed. And in that spirit, I think maybe we should move into our final week of our month of musicals. Yeah, because it's apparently June 29th, I think. (laughs) What are you talking about, Mark? These come out... In real time. This podcast is live. Anytime you listen to this podcast, you are hearing us talk in the moment. It's like radio. Yeah, so sometimes we just really like to make dated references. Exactly. Like last week when we talked about the forthcoming film Aladdin. (laughs) Yes, that movie that we decided as a joke to refer to in past tense. That's right. Well, in that spirit... Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast. We're like detectives. We're like explorers digging through the jungles of pop culture and cinema to find that which has not yet been discovered. Specifically, an answer to the question, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable. It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation or something kinda in the middle where it's maybe important and also maybe not. Either way, we're gonna dig in and we're gonna see what's there. It's our mission. It's our quest. It's our journey. We've got a map. The map doesn't make a ton of sense. It's got weird landmarks on it that we can't quite figure out. But I suspect we'll be able to find those landmarks 
pretty easily. And this week, we are welcoming a guest back to the show from the very first episode of the renamed We Love the Love. Uh, it's our good friend Katie. Hello. Let's blaze a trail. Speaking of the music, I want to tell this little story because it has nothing to do with the romance. This movie came out when I was about six. Didn't really know who Elton John was. So I often got confused between Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and The Road to El Dorado and thought they were the same thing for a long time. Because I was just starting to listen to, you know, CDs at this point, probably. And I think we had the El Dorado soundtrack on CD, and it's music by Elton John. And then I saw another CD by Elton John with Road in the title, which was also yellow in color. It was like, is this the same? And it is not. Dear I listener, that, I could see why that is very confusing. I would watch this movie with the songs replaced with songs from that album. I think I would watch most movies with songs replaced by songs from that album. Sure. I do think that this movie, since we're talking about musicals, this is one where the songs themselves could be switched out fairly easily. The songs don't really add to the story much, I'd say. It was interesting. I was reading about this a little bit. Because this movie is, of course, part of our ongoing coverage of the films of DreamWorks Animation, brought to you by Square Apron, the all-in-one platform that allows you to build delicious websites in the comfort of your home. And the music for this movie is written, as you said, by Elton John and Tim Rice, with a score by Hans Zimmer. The three of them are the same team, of course, that worked on The Lion King for Disney in 1994, which was the last animated film entirely overseen by Jeffrey Katzenberg, who then left to co-found DreamWorks. He is, of course, the K in DreamWorks SKG. And what's interesting is, in reading about the development of the music, it was a deliberate choice not to make it a traditional musical in the style of the movies that Katzenberg had overseen at Disney, including... Uh, In one interview I was reading, co-producer Bonnie Radford talked about the decision to use music, quote, to get us through some story points, which does kind of describe the way a lot of these songs play. A lot of them play over montages. I was just going to say they are definitely used as montages, like trekking through the jungle, watching Miguel fall in love with the city and interact with it. So that song, the Miguel is in love with El Dorado, was originally written as a love song for Tulio and Shell, and then they dropped it, and like a year later were trying to fill in a gap in the plot and they're like oh we have this love song we could just change what it's about that makes a lot of sense actually (laughs) yeah i'm not surprised at all so i don't know if we've formally said we're talking about the road to el dorado the 2000 conquest of central america slash buddy adventure film from dreamworks animation directed by don paul and bebo bergeron two veterans of the animation wars of the 1990s both of them worked at disney worked at dreamworks previously and at amblimation and some of the smaller studios bebo bergeron would go on to direct again for dreamworks as one of the co-directors of the film shark tale which we've covered before yikes never saw that one keep it that way yeah (laughs) that doesn't need to change it's pretty bad i would say it is probably the second gayest dreamworks film after this one Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, Lenny is explicitly gay in that film. Yeah, but this one... Yeah, Yeah. the Jack Black shark. But this one, the energy is just there. Absolutely, it's huge. With Zekulcon? No, like, Miguel clearly loves Tulio. Those dudes, there's a romance. Oh, I thought he liked Chell. He thinks he likes Chell. I think Miguel is thoroughly closeted, but his real attraction is to Tulio. The real reason he's mad... Is because he's in love with Tulio and he's jealous that Tulio is in love with someone else. But to hide that. that, he's lying to himself and saying he's jealous of Chell. I can see that. It's hard being a gay man in 16th century Spain. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> you would think it would be so easy. What with the whole Inquisition being kind of over. Yeah, it's getting there. It's closing down. Everything's probably so libertine now. All right, so why don't we all talk a little bit about our experience seeing this? Because I think we had all seen this movie before, in our case, this afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. I think I saw it maybe in theaters, but I don't really... I watched it a couple times, but it wasn't one that I was watching a lot. So I think the last time I saw it would have been probably no later than 2004. It's been a long time since I've seen this one. I saw the movie probably when I was in middle school. My great aunt came to visit and she was often bringing us 
gifts like movies and she brought the road to el dorado dvd and we watched it and my little sister rebecca and i both thought it was awesome and we watched it all the time we constantly quote it um the other day my husband and i were watching an episode of survivor guatemala and they were playing a game very reminiscent of the game that they play in the road to el dorado and i kept yelling tulio the heap the heap the whole time and they even talked about how they'd sacrifice people just like Zekelcon. so I have a soft spot for this movie, and I'm sure Will and Mark are going to poke lots of holes in it and find tons of flaws, but I still love it. Do you know that Mark has previously, prior to watching A League of Their Own for the podcast, he listed this as his favorite sports movie? I could totally see that. I honestly was surprised at how much I wasn't cringed out by this movie. I thought it was going to be a lot worse in terms of now that I understand the concept of imperialism and the negatives of that and the fact that Cortez was a giant monster. I was worried. And he's definitely portrayed as a giant monster. Yeah, I was worried. And then as soon as he showed up for the first time, I was like, oh, he's one of the scariest villains I've seen in a DreamWorks movie. Right, of course. Hernan Cortez as played by Jim Cummings, voice of Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) Are you serious? Yeah. (laughs) I had no idea. That's what he does. If you want to see Jim Cummings really lean in as a villain, there was a convention probably like six years ago now where he was on a panel with a bunch of other voice actors and they were reading from the opening scenes of the script of the original Star Wars movie. And Jim Cummings had the role of Darth Vader, but did it with the voice of Winnie the Pooh. That's amazing. It's pretty incredible. And he's still doing like all the lip smacking and stuff like that, but talking about finding the princess. That's great. You should tweet it. It's pretty great. Yeah, I'll post that on our social media. I first saw this movie at a sleepover, probably in 2000. This movie came out in March, and this would have been later in the year. I believe most of the sleepover was watching the Jim Carrey film, The Mask. But I, at the time, would have been seven, and I was uh, very shy about all things and pretty darn sheltered in my media exposure. And I was like, oh, PG-13, I don't know about this. So me and the one other dude who was similarly sheltered were in another room watching The Road to El Dorado. That doesn't surprise me. Nope. (laughs) I think my first PG-13 movie is when I watched The Mummy at too young of an age. That movie can be terrifying. And I actually really liked it, but I got in trouble for it. Oh no! Then For Suzanne, it was until she was like 15. She had to call my parents and check in if a movie was okay for her to watch. I had a friend who had to do that too. But for me, as the younger child, my parents had kind of given up, and they showed me my first R movie at 12, and it was before Suzanne, who is almost three years older than me, had seen any R movies. My first PG-13 movie was Jurassic Park. My parents took us to see it at the drive-in when it had come out. So what a I was great probably, way to watch Jurassic Park. I was probably Park. like five. It was terrifying, but I loved it. Too young. I walked into people watching Jurassic Park and it was the raptor scene when I was about five. And the I, kitchen scene? I cried and left. That movie rules! Well, the movie before Jurassic Park, because I don't know if you've been to a drive-in, but it's always a double feature. The movie before it was The Flintstones, which was equally as terrifying because in it its own bad? way. Because it was so terrible. Yes. The one with like Rosie O'Donnell and John, Goodman. And John Goodman. That very movie. I've definitely seen that. But I, I kind of want to watch it again. Should we do it for the show? <laughs> I feel like it might be hilarious for us to do that. You could also watch the sequel, Viva Rock Vegas. I oh, think I've yeah. seen that one. I forgot about that. So the cast is John Goodman as Fred Flintstone, Rick Moranis as Barney Rubble. Oh my gosh. Elizabeth Perkins as Wilma Flintstone and Rosie O'Donnell as Betty Rubble with Kyle MacLachlan as the villainous executive vice president. I just remember now we're Fred talking. Flintstone almost gets lynched in the movie. I can't remember why. Yikes. But a mob literally comes in to like lynch him. Um, Halle Berry plays a seductive secretary and it's Elizabeth Taylor's last theatrical film appearance. I did know that. So I believe that's like one of the famous pieces of trivia for that movie. I believe we should watch it. Oh boy. This movie sounds insane. It in my brain is very much of a piece with Super Mario Brothers. I think it probably is similar. It came out around the same time. So this movie though is one of the first ideas that gets underway after DreamWorks is established. So 1994, Jeffrey Katzenberg, depending on who you ask, quits or gets fired from Disney. And starts talking to Steven Spielberg and David Geffen about starting their own 
film studio. And Katzenberg is determined to put an animation element there to do what he thought of as the kind of movies he couldn't do at Disney. We know one of the big ones there that gets underway quickly is The Prince of Egypt. And the second traditionally animated movie that they put out is this one, The Road Del Dorado. So Geffen is the crassus of this triumvirate, right? The one no one remembers. He's the money, though. He is the money. He was a record producer prior to that. He was a music executive. And so he comes in with a lot of the money that bankrolls it. Yeah, but Spielberg and Katzenberg are the Caesar and Pompey, I'd say. Well, sure. And that's partially because Katzenberg takes over this animation division and because Spielberg is Steven Spielberg. Yep. And one of Katzenberg's pitches is that other animation studios that had started up had failed because they tried to make Disney movies. You think about other movies that are coming out, things like Anastasia, Quest for Camelot, that are effectively trying to do similar things to what Disney was doing at the time. And Katzenberg is saying, we've got to do our own deal if we want to have successful animation. And they bring on Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio to write the screenplay. They had written the screenplay for Aladdin at Disney. They had just written The Mask of Zorro, the Antonio Banderas movie. They would go on to write both Shrek and Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy. So a lot of adventure kind of films. That's their bread and butter. We've talked about them before when we talked about Shrek and Pirates. And their idea was, well, you look at a lot of these Disney animated movies, you've got kind of a straight-laced hero, and you've got wacky sidekicks who have more vices, they're more complicated characters, and their idea was, what if you take the sidekicks and let them hijack the movie? So you take these more complicated, goofy characters and you put them at the center of the story. Yeah, two con men. And so they had that idea, and then they said, all right, so what if you do, like, a comedy duo, like, in the old days, which we don't see so much, and that's where the idea to literally make a tribute to these Bob Hope, Bing Crosby road movies. I was just going to bring that up. I used to watch those movies with my dad. Really? I've never seen any of them. They're pretty charming. My dad is a big fan of old movies, and you could often find him on an afternoon just watching movies on Turner Classic Movies, AMC, or um, A&E as well. And I watched a few with him. Road to Bali, Road to Zimbabwe, there's Road to Hong Kong. There's a whole bunch of them. There's like eight? There are. And this movie is very reminiscent. First of all, the title is also just like the titles, like Road to Bali, The Road to El Dorado. It's a duo of men where one is more of a ladies' man, uh, smooth-talking, charismatic, and the other one is more of a doofus. A ladies' man, man's man, man about town? That's the one. That's exactly right. So Tulio would be like the Bing Crosby character, whereas Miguel is more like the Bob Hope character. It just hit me that all of the road movies are to islands. Because it's Singapore, Bali, Zanzibar, Hong Kong. Oh, I misspoke. I uh, Road to Zimbabwe. Rio is one of them. I meant Zanzibar. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, just because, I guess, Rio. But a lot of them are islands which don't have roads to them. So that, that in is itself a is a joke. Good point. I wonder if Singapore had a... It probably had a bridge to the mainland in the 40s, but still. Well, there's only one. I've never thought about that before. But in these movies, Bing Crosby always gets the girl and Bob Hope always loses out on the love triangle. With the native women often played by a white woman. Uh, yes, that, <laughs> that is correct, Mark. I was honestly so happy that Chell was not voiced by a white woman. I fully expected it. It's the little things. It's the little things. That's one of the reasons where I was just like, oh, I'm not as cringed out by this. This movie kind of had a tension from its beginning, where Elliot and Rossio were in part inspired to do this buddy comedy. But at the same time, the other piece of the inception of this project is right before DreamWorks got formally announced, they met with Jeffrey Katzenberg and he gave them a book about the conquest of Mexico. And it's like, yo, I'm interested in making an animated movie set during the Age of Exploration and the conquest of Central America. And so you have this very serious material and this comedic idea, and that tension was kind of a challenge for the entire production. Elliot and Rossio talked about conceiving of Miguel and Tulio very much as being antiheroes, complicated guys, much grayer than the con men that we get in the ultimate movie, and conceived of them really having to do much more to triumph over their flaws than they do in this. Whereas in this one, they mostly stay the same. They just have to make the right choice at the right time. And this movie struggled through development at times. There was actually a plan for a while to make it a PG-13 release, which would have meant I would not have seen it at that slumber party. But during production on The Prince of Egypt, Katzenberg decided that this movie should be less serious 
than Prince of Egypt comparatively. So this was put on hold for a while, to the point that crew members started calling it El Dorado, the Lost City of Hold. And by the time it came back, the romance had been toned down, Miguel and Tulio became less raunchy, Shell got more clothes than she had had previously. How? Yeah, Great she's, question. That is really just wearing a couple of strips of that's clothing. more clothes? Yes. An alarming thing to be told. Shell's quite curvaceous. She's got a very unrealistic figure there. So the animators really defended that at the time, where they were like, yeah, well, all the women in Disney movies look like statues, and we were trying to have women with more realistic bodies. I was like, I'm not sure you succeeded. I will give you the curvy legs, but her waist is teeny, teeny, tiny. It's alarming. Yes. She is realistically horny, though. I mean, she is quite horny. <laughs> she is the horniest animated character we've seen in our series, I'd say. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, the closest would probably be Will Smith in Shark Tale. Yeah, because the sexy fish is not actually horny. She just wants money. Right. She's a gold digger. Yeah. She should have gone to El Dorado. A lot of gold there. That's one of your worst and jokes Chelle you've definitely made. definitely was a gold digger as well, but she, I agree, was also just horny as well. So... The movie eventually got put back on track, and I'm a little sorry for some of the things that were lost along the way. In the original version, Tulio and Miguel do not find El Dorado. They just stumble across a random village and decide that it's El Dorado, and are just very wrong. And also, though, it's a little bit darker. The villagers effectively have to surrender to Cortez. They abandon the town and just hide away in the jungle. They survive, but their culture doesn't, which is reflective of a lot of what happened to the Mayans. And I think the people in this movie are supposed to be Mayan, but I'm not certain. It's kind of... It's Mayans or Aztecs. It's vague. Because but also there are Olmec heads guarding that, like, water entrance. Yeah, I think it's more leaning towards Aztec because Aztec are more traditionally associated with the, like, human sacrifice and Cortez and the Maya had mostly their classical civilization as it would have looked like in El Dorado had mostly faded out by the time the Spanish arrived. Right. But the artwork is mostly Mayan-inspired. Right, but the artwork and the ball game are more Mayan-inspired. Also, El Dorado is in South America, according to legend. Yes, also El Dorado is tied more to the Inca, I think, because the Inca had more gold. Well, El Dorado is mostly Amazonian. Okay. The idea is that it's in, like, Colombia, right. hidden somewhere in the jungle. The first expeditions for that, I did some research, start early. It's like 1530s. People start sending expeditions out for El Dorado. Well, we all know that El Dorado is actually Cibola and is under Mount it's Rushmore. It's buried beneath Mount Rushmore. This is the first of, like, several movies in the 2000s that are all built around hunting for El Dorado because we get National Treasure Book of Secrets. And then, of course, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull also ends in a search for Cibola. The first... I like to pretend that movie does not exist. That movie is better than people give it credit for especially like the first half of it like until the cgi monkeys yeah i was just gonna say shia labeouf swinging with the monkeys that's all i have to say that's the worst part of that movie it is better than temple of doom it is better than temple of doom because at least watching this you're not like wow this movie hates indian people I don't know if you know, Temple of Doom was denied permission to shoot in India by the Indian government for being too racist. It is pretty racist, saying that Indian people only eat monkey brains. Right, yeah. And I'll say, I remember when Crystal Skull came out and people were like, oh, he like hides in a fridge. What's that? That scene rules. The thing is, that's very in line with the 50s sci-fi movies. Which is what that movie's trying to be. Yeah, which is what the movie's commenting on. But back to El Dorado, the first of the Uncharted games is also centered around finding El Dorado, and that comes out in 2007. So again, it's part of this uh, decade of hunting for gold. It was then followed by the decade of zombie obsession. Actually... Uncharted very happily joins the two because oh, it's the bridge. El Dorado turns people into zombies, and then you have to kill Nazi zombies, as the Nazis found El Dorado first. Checks out. Spoiler alert for the game that has been out for 12 years. So we should move into the plot, but just a couple of things to uh, touch on before we do. The Road to El Dorado is the second of DreamWorks' four traditionally animated movies, followed later by Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron, and... That movie is very frustrating. It is indeed. Just, he gets out of one jam, and then right into another. another one, and they get sequentially more depressing as they go. Yeah. Very frustrating. And then the last one is Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas. Never saw that one. I have also not seen it. But this one was like 
many of them, seen as somewhat of a disappointment. It had a $95 million budget. I imagine a lot of that is the CGI in this movie, because there is a ton of it. Mm. Much also more than in Prince of Egypt. paying Elton John for his services. I'm sure Elton John does not come cheap, especially post-Lion King. Yeah. But this movie definitely does elevate the CGI levels on Prince right. of Egypt. I don't know that it looks better than Prince of Egypt, I don't but there's a lot it, more of it. I don't think it looks that much worse either. Where it really stands out to me is all of the gold that is not jewelry is rendered on a computer. Right. And it stands out a lot. That's bad, but in terms of the leopard... The stone jaguar. Yeah, a lot of that stuff looks pretty cool. Looks pretty, yeah. It doesn't look as bad as I thought it would look. And they use the CGI to do a lot of fun camera work that you wouldn't have seen in an animated film 10 years earlier. Right. And Prince of Egypt does the CGI really well. And you can tell this is a next step. And it's not exactly a full step forward, but it definitely is taking what they've learned and trying to expand on it. Right. It's telling that Don Paul, one of the co-directors of this movie, had been the VFX supervisor for Prince of Egypt before that. But anyway, the movie opened on March 31st, 2000, which means it opened just a little bit less than nine months before Disney's The Emperor's New Groove. Love The Emperor's New Groove. I haven't seen it in a long time, but that was like... Oh, it Uh, holds up. That was a staple of fifth grade, we're not doing anything today, watch this movie. It holds up. You need to watch it again. This one did not do super well. It only made $50 million against that $95 million budget. Ouch. So that's not great. It opened at number two behind week three of Aaron Brockovich and fell bit by bit from there. So, should we start getting into the points? Let's do it. So, every week to talk about the romance of our chosen movie, we break it up into five different points that'll let us talk about it in different ways. So, Katie, as our guest, you will be taking the lead on guiding us through this. We'll talk a little bit about the plot. We'll talk about some of the themes, all the things that you've tied into these points. So, one of the points I had was... Again the parallels between this movie and the Bob Hope and Bing Crosby movies from way back in the day. And a theme often seen in those movies is a love triangle. And in this case, it is between, well, what they present it to be as Miguel, Tulio, and Shell. Though, as my co-host pointed out, that it might have been... It's a multi-way triangle. Exactly, exactly. Honestly, the more queer people are, the more interesting love triangles get. It's true. For sure. And within this, I feel like Tulio violates the major bros before hoes code. He and uh, Miguel make a deal that Shell is off limits... And not long after, he is found tumbling around with Chell behind the curtains. And when asked, what would people say if they saw a god with someone like her? He says, lucky god. So he quickly ditches his bro and goes for the hoe. Yeah, so Miguel and Tulio are our rapscallions at the core of this movie. Uh, That's Miguel played by... Famous Spaniard, Kenneth Branagh, and Tulio, played by Mr. Fishoder himself, Kevin Klein. I assume the reason Tulio wanted to get back to Spain is because the Wonder Wharf was operating without him for far too long. Yeah, Mickey's going to be in charge of that, and that's going to be a disaster. And I was thrown fairly regularly by this Spaniard and his British accent. I don't know why it bothered me more than the American accents. I think the inconsistency is kind of... What throws you off, where it's one American and one Brit instead of just having two people with the same accent. It does seem like they're having a good time, though. And Klein and Branagh did record their lines in the studio together, which is a rarity in animated movies. Normally, each actor will record individually with a director or somebody feeding them lines to respond to. But they wanted to be able to improvise and play off each other. Except for the show, Bob's Burgers. That's right! Where they all do record together. So anyway, they are scoundrels, they're cheats, they're gamblers, and they get caught and they stow away on a ship and they have a map that'll take them to the City of Gold and they wind up in South America and they're like, cool, we'll go find the City of Gold. And they're going through the jungle, finding these very large animal-themed landmarks when Shell literally crashes into them. Yes, she is robbing the temple and trying to escape and runs right into them and they end up back in El Dorado where... They are perceived to be gods. Do we ever find out exactly why Chell is running away? 
We're told that she had stolen this gold thing from the temple. Right. I think we're meant to believe that she, in her desire to escape El Dorado, in her desire for adventure, had been planning on using that to barter her way to some more interesting part of the world. She wanted to see the world. But the movie never necessarily spells that out. Okay. Once they're there, this love triangle that Katie was talking about pretty immediately establishes itself, where Miguel and Tulio both seem to be attracted to her. We know, of course, that Miguel is lying to himself. He's performing heterosexuality in order to remain closeted both to himself and to society. And Tulio is like, wait a minute, this is a bad idea. We've got to keep up this lie that we're gods. We can't be distracted by sexy women. She ultimately does become distracted by the sexy woman. She distracts him deliberately. She's like giving him back rubs and stuff. And she's like, we should hang out, sexy man. Yeah, she's trying to get in on that gold. Yeah. That's definitely her motivation at first, but then it quickly becomes apparent that she is attracted to these roguish Spaniards. I love the line where they're changing into their god outfits, and they're just like, do you mind? Trying to get her to leave the room. And she just goes, no, and continues to stare at them as they take their clothes off. She knows what she wants. The horniest of all the female leads we've covered in a DreamWorks movie. Definitely in a DreamWorks movie. So we've got our love triangle. Katie, what else do we have? I'll turn and I'll see As if our love were new Someday we can start again Someday soon So within the love triangle, Miguel and Tulio are clearly con artists. And Chell... To the point that, like, they had to flee Spain because they'd been gambling with loaded dice. Exactly. So then they get to El Dorado, and again, they get into this con. This time that they are deities come to visit El Dorado. And Chell becomes integrated into this con. And she becomes a con woman herself trying to convince all of the people of El Dorado and the chief that they are indeed gods. And I think that is definitely something that brings her together with the both of them, especially with Tulio. Absolutely. And she helps them out. Like, for example, later on in the movie, they are asked by the high priest, who is very excited by the arrival of the gods because he wants them to bring fire and destruction and death. He's like, oh, you guys should stop playing in the street with children. You should play this sport against real burly men who will offer you some challenge. Not a lot of challenge because you're gods, but some challenge. And so they're forced to play this game against like linebackers and Chell helps them to cheat by replacing the ball with, with an armadillo. With a little armadillo. An the armad- little thing gets so dizzy. An armadillo that seems to be able to defy gravity and nature. Yes. Maybe they should be worshipping that armadillo instead. That's it. That's honestly true. Bebo is a flying armadillo, essentially, who is sentient and almost communicative. It's clearly not the age of the jaguar. It is the age of the armadillo. Oh, absolutely. What if they had a giant stone, like, armadillo to fight the giant stone jaguar? I would support that. Definitely support that. Speaking of animals that communicate, did you guys notice that when they are coming into El Dorado? Yes, I did. And they're all going, El Dorado. The horse also mouths the words El Dorado. Yes, I did. I missed that. Because that is not followed up on at any point. Does the horse speak Spanish? Also, all of the people in El Dorado speak Spanish? The language is never addressed, but I don't mind. Because that would just be, like, an extra five minutes added onto the movie where they have to justify why they can communicate. Like in Pocahontas, where the wind blows around Pocahontas and John Smith, and then all of a sudden they can understand each other. Or in Atlantis, where she just says, well, the Atlanteans invented the concept of language, so we speak all of them. We don't have time for me to go on and on about Atlantis. That movie is madness. Look. In Disney's Atlantis <laughs> The Lost we do Empire, have time. <laughs> in Disney's Atlantis The Lost Empire, we see people in the prologue using fantastic machinery. Then, like, the gods get angry and sink Atlantis and the machinery no longer works. Then, Milo Thatch and his crew burrow down into Atlantis, where they find the same people still there with all of the materials to make their technology work. But somehow, these same people... Don't remember how it works? We need the white boy from New York? Maybe they were cursed by the gods with forgetfulness. I don't know about that. But also with immortality? That's the thing! 
They have to be thousands of years old, and her mom is like a battery? And she's like 18. It really would have been fine if they were not the same people. Right! That solves the problem! The whole problem is solved if they just animate different people at the beginning. That movie baffles me. It's like crazy stupid love in the way that it breaks my brain. A movie that I have not seen. But you will soon. But I will see it soon. All right, Katie, so what else do we need to talk about for El Dorado? It's tough to be a god, right where mortals have not drawn. Be deified when really you're a sham. Um, another bit of love seen in this movie is Zekul Khan's Love and devotion to all things sacrificial. So this is Zelkakon, the high priest of El Dorado, who's got a real power struggle going on with the chief. Absolutely. The chief likes happiness and feasts and peace and harmony. Zekulkan wants everything written in blood. He wants people to be sacrificed. Like, I can't tell you how... Well, I could have counted, I guess... But he's always trying to sacrifice people, and he just will not rest. It's kind of like a little kid who's just like, when are we going to sacrifice people? You said we could. Absolutely. Mom. I love the chief. You are a mom. The chief is fantastic. As a mom, are you worried about the point when your child starts asking you repeatedly to sacrifice people? You know, I am worried about that. I've been reading some books on the subject about how to handle it, and I've learned... Does, like, Dr. Spock have a lot to say about human sacrifice? You know, Spock, the book has been updated many, many times, not by Spock himself, but this movie has taught me to let Haley know the stars are not in position for this particular tribute, so we cannot sacrifice. Human sacrifice obsession is one of Piaget's stages of development, right? Yeah, it's part of the sensory motor stage. <laughs> little Piaget. So anyway, you were saying that uh, Zeklukhan has a love of murder. He really does. Like, every instance, he's trying to sacrifice people for Miguel and Tulio. And then at the end of the movie, he also <laughs> finds himself identifying with... Cortez, one of the bloodiest men in history. So I Not a great move. No, not so much. It doesn't end up working so well for him. It's also worth noting that prior to that, to get revenge on Miguel and Tulio for claiming falsely to be his gods, he animates the giant jaguar automaton. With a sacrifice. Indeed he does. He pushes his very, very dumb assistant into the potion and then is controlling this thing. And when it came to life, it made this sound. And I have to credit the Foley artist because they must have been in my parents' basement. Because the roar that it gives is the same one that my dad had set up our family computer to make when it turned on because he was a very proud Penn State graduate. And I guess that was a sound he associated with the Nittany Lions. I had a weird flashback the minute I heard that sound. That sounds a lot like your dad. Also, speaking of the chief, did anyone else notice at the end of the movie, when he's giving a handshake to say farewell to Tulio, he does like a too slow thing. He holds out his hand and then whips it back to his head. Oh, yeah. I did notice that because he's a fun guy. What the heck? But then he hugs him. He does. It's kind of like a, we're formal doing a handshake. Joke, I love you, man. (laughs) It's such a weird moment. (laughs) It is. He's my kind of guy. Throwing parties, eating feasts, and he's very understanding, like, when he slyly lets Miguel know, oh, hey, I know you're human, but he's cool with it. Yeah, because it's politically useful to have the gods there. Because he's like, you know what? I like you. He was the chief that got the gods to come live with them. Yeah, exactly. Having not seen this for so long, I had assumed that Chell was the chief's daughter and was shocked when she wasn't. Yeah, we just know nothing about her background. Yeah, we know nothing about who she is, where she comes from. We know she's horny and she wants to leave. Yep, just like a lot of people I know. (laughs) (laughs) But I was thinking like, you know, Jasmine and Pocahontas and etc. They all have, especially Jasmine has the jovial, happy ruler who has a mystical, mean associate. Yeah. So I was just like, ah, so Chell must be the chief's daughter. And then when I was proven wrong, I was very confused. It does look like the chief does have children. In one scene, he's got lots of little children climbing about him. Yeah, I assume he does. It's probably part of his job. Yeah, to preserve the royal bloodline. 
I think one thing that we want to mention as long as we're thinking about the romance, we talked about how Tulio and Shell get together sort of flirtatiously slash hornily, and they start making out. I think it's implied that they bang. Oh, it very much is. Yeah, it is. When I was thinking the other day about what movies I could show to my students after field day, this movie, because like I said, was a very pivotal part of my childhood, popped into my head, and then I thought, nope, I cannot show this movie in a Catholic grade school when two animated characters are clearly having sex behind a curtain. Yeah, they hear someone coming in, and so they both pop up. And, like, his hair is a mess. She pops up first, and then a few feet in front of her, he pops up. Doesn't seem like their heads were that close together in their layout. After that, we see them continuing to flirt. They're, like, dancing. He's giving her flowers. And Miguel sees them planning to go back together and being like, ah, don't worry about Miguel. We'll just be happy together. And Miguel's like, fine. And he gets really angry. And eventually, all three of them wind up leaving together. But we do see some tension brought out by this romance because it threatens to split up the long-standing love between Miguel and Tulio. Who frequently go out of their way to call each other partner. Telling you, it is just displaced anger. I know! It really does threaten their relationship. Miguel is determined to stay in El Dorado, and Tulio is determined to take their fortune and leave with Chell. I understand where Miguel's coming from. Seems like a much nicer life there. Yeah, you get pampered, you live a nice life, the government's not hunting you. It's a small town, it seems that everyone knows each other. Granted, gold is worthless there because there's so much of it. But what do you need money for? Exactly. If you're the god, they give you everything. And after Zekulkan had been kicked out, he didn't really have to worry about anybody outing him. And they've ended human sacrifice there, so that's not an issue. And then at the end of the movie, they wind up leaving El Dorado. They collapse the entrance in order to save it from Cortez's army. And also, hopefully, smallpox. Hopefully. And the three of them journey off into the jungle in search of their next adventure with a horse with gold horseshoes. So at this point, do we find the various romances between Miguel, Tulio, and Chell to be believable? I think so. They're all attractive people. Chell's looking for a way out, and in her mind, Tulio has become that way out. Miguel is a closeted man who is trying to hide his true feelings for his best friend by pretending to be attracted to a woman. And Tulio is a horny guy that falls for a hot woman. I think that sums it up. (laughs) It's pretty hard to argue with all that. (laughs) Yeah. It is so painful to watch Miguel. It really is. And I just... Poor buddy. He'll figure it out. He's Kenneth Branagh. He's Kenneth Branagh. Eventually he'll get to take off his hat in Dunkirk and look the best. This is like sure. two years before he's Gilderoy Lockhart, possibly the greatest Branagh role. Because he's playing Kenneth Branagh. Right. You're like, oh, that is the dude who made all those Shakespeare movies and was once married to Emma Thompson and then cheated on her. Also, Murder on the Orient Express. That movie is bizarre. I can only imagine. It's very strange. The original rules. The Branagh one is weird. Yeah. The new one? Yeah. just came out? I've only read the book. I love the book. I love the result of the book. Spoilers for Murder on the Orient Express, a book that came out like 70 years ago. But the everyone did it is a great twist. Oh, yeah. Especially because it really hadn't happened before that. Yeah. So, good work, Agatha Christie. It's the kind of thing that I love throwing in. It's just like a joke at the end of a story. It's like, and at the end, everyone did it, and the kimono was a red herring. The red kimono That's was right. a red herring. That was the clue. All right. Now, we always rate the romance of a movie on a scale from 1 to 10, where 1 is, we really don't believe any of it, and 10 is, this is 100% believable. We got no quibbles. So, Katie, where would you rank The Road to El Dorado on that scale? I'd say a 9. Yeah? Yeah. It does take place over three days. <laughs> oh, yeah. Can we talk about the fact Okay, that- when you say that, that puts it into perspective a little more. Maybe like a seven? They announced that they could build a transatlantic sailing ship in a week, and he negotiates them down to three days, and they build it canoe style out of one log. They don't know, like, they have not sailed transatlantic before, I'm assuming. Sure, but so that is I much don't... bigger than any river navigator. That... It is. And I guess they are making it for the gods, so it has to be bigger, but... They make it canoe they style. They make it in three days. Obscene. But yes, this movie takes place over three days, so because of that, I agree. I'd give it a seven or eight, probably. I'm fine with a seven. Yeah. 
Uh, maybe an eight for the representation of closeted homosexuality. Yeah. Which I think is very nicely done. I think so. Do you think any of these people are dateable? Um, maybe? What do you think? I feel like Chell is not a girl you would bring home to meet your parents. No. Definitely not. She's for starters, no. She's a kleptomaniac. That's definitely a point against her. You would lose a family heirloom when you invite Shell to your house. Oh, at least one. What about the boys? I feel like Tulio's the guy that a girl would think she could fix him. And in that way, I think he would be very successful in attaining girlfriends, but whether or not he would keep them, that I'm not so sure of. I agree with that. That's very well put, I think. Miguel... He's got to do some work on Miguel. Miguel needs to Miguel. go to a place where he can happy. find his true self. Yeah. And I don't know what that is in 1519. <laughs> I agree. But I wish him the best. Yeah. If you... Maybe they'll find another lost city. I don't know. The I lost like city the of... of El Dorado would, would have been accepting Sexual openness. The lost city of Palm Springs. <laughs> if you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? I know you're a big Zelnical fan oh no i am not Zelnical? a big i don't know is that no i think he's creepy um i really like the chief i was also thinking I the think chief. he's a very jovial man um i love miguel but i don't think i'm what he wants so that would be problematic it would ultimately be a very frustrating relationship it would yeah. be but i feel like we'd be really good friends and you know thinking about it there's really only like six characters in this movie you're not going to date Cortez. Two of them are villains. What about Altivo? Three of them are kleptomaniac con artists. And one of them is the chief. There's also Altivo and the armadillo. Who are animals. So Altivo can maybe talk? Yeah, Altivo <laughs> has more going on there. <laughs> that is fair. But I was thinking Miguel. Yeah, he's a nice guy. Once he does some work on himself. He's a musician. Yes, he's a musician. Good with kids. He's nice. He's, he's happy. He's got a great sense of humor. He's a political activist against human sacrifice. Yeah, good for him. Will? Chief? Yeah, I'm definitely with the chief. He seems like a great guy. I think he was smoking a cigar in one scene. He was. <laughs> he definitely was. That was a, probably just a quick shout out to the fact that tobacco originated in the New World, but yeah, not but tobacco's in North that American. area at all. All right. Do we think that Chell and Tulio would stay together? No. They'll probably leave each owning each other's stuff. <laughs> well, that's assuming that they actually survive. Oh, true. You think they just die in the jungle? Well, there's the jungle and their voyages across the sea. They don't seem very well stocked or prepared. Are they ever making it back to Europe? No. I don't think so. They would have to be riding back with Spaniards who would want to either enslave or kill Chell. Yeah. Which wouldn't be great. Also, speaking of the jungle, in the scene where they arrive on land, they are not wearing shoes. The first scene where they go into the jungle, I thought, oh boy, they're not wearing shoes. Cut to the next scene where they're in the jungle and they have shoes on. Where did those shoes come from? It's the power of Elton John. Oh my gosh, this is a real thing that exists. So as part of the promotion for this movie, they did a music video of Someday Out of the Blue, one of the songs in this movie. That's just in the credits. It's not actually in the film. Okay. And it features Elton John DreamWorksified, like a DreamWorks-style animated Elton John going through the jungle singing the song. So maybe he found them and provided shoes from his extensive maybe wardrobe. Maybe he left them on the beach for them saying, here, find these. Yeah, the shoes appeared somewhere out of the blue. It all song fits takes together. takes a whole new meaning. All right, anyway. Um... Should this movie be mounted as a stage musical? It's happened to so many of the movies we covered that we now always have to ask. I don't think so. I don't think anything on stage would do any favors for it, especially as someone who recently saw Anastasia, the stage adaptation. I grew up with that movie, which again, I know is very flawed, especially historically, but I don't think it translated as well to a stage musical. And I think Rodel Dorado would suffer the same. Yeah, this is a movie that likes its spectacle. It likes being able to do big things that are going to be harder to pull off on stage. Exactly. Like, the Anastasia musical didn't even have Rasputin in it. And he was the big villain in the movie, so... Alright, any other thoughts on Road to El Dorado? I think that's 
probably does it. Yeah, I'd say it's probably in the middle of the DreamWorks pack for me at this point. It's no Prince of Egypt, but it's no Shark Tale. Yeah, it's not the worst, but it's not the best. I do love, though, when the shark comes out of the water and just grabs the seagull off the oar that they were hoping to Oh, I forgot about that. That was a good scene. <laughs> that, that is just hilarious in my mind. Yeah, it's kind of a shame how forgettable this movie is because a lot of the people behind it are really exciting, like Elliot and Rossio and... Elton John and Tim Rice and Hans Zimmer. Yeah, but, but none of them, like, lost their careers over it. Exactly. So they all did good work afterwards. It's fine. I was just struck as I was going by, like, how by the end of each song I had already kind of forgotten what it was. Especially we have that opening song that's about, like, the legend of El Dorado that is never referenced again. And it kind of feels like they're playing in the circle of life territory, but it doesn't feed into anything. And speaking of the story of the road to El Dorado... Where does that one guy get the map when he's like, I have this map, I want to bet. Where did he get it? Presumably from someone else. Maybe he's done a voyage already and come back. Because it is a few years, like, he could have been on the first Columbus voyage, come back with the map. Did he know Chell? Interesting. And is he the one who... Is Chell trying to escape to get to him? Is he the one who informed Chell of the world outside of El Dorado? Did he teach everyone Spanish? And so desperately wants to go. That's a good idea. Maybe he taught them all Spanish. Maybe he did. Well, I think at this point, we don't really have anything else we can say about that movie. We're going to send these questions out into the world. And if you have answers, please let us know. Next week, we'll be discussing a movie that is out in theaters by then. That's right. We're going to be watching yesterday, the weekend that it comes out, and we'll have an episode for you on Monday morning. So you should see it opening weekend and join us or else see it when you get the chance and then listen to the episode. Yeah. I think it'll be an interesting one for us to look at, a movie that definitely has a lot of romance in it. In 2019, it's written by Richard Curtis, who we've talked about a number of times with things like The Tall Guy, Bridget Jones's Diary, some of these other classics of the 90s and early 2000s. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod and email us movies or questions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and to subscribe. It really helps other people to find the show. All right, Katie, last question. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Always carry an armadillo. That's good. It's hard to argue with that. Yeah. It's really key to their relationship when you think about it, the way that it helps to push Tulio and Shell to the next level. Absolutely. Otherwise, they would have been sacrificed. And then they never could have hooked up. I mean, if I'm being perfectly honest, one thing I saw in this movie is that back rubs are the key to seduction because that is entirely what is done for Shell to get Tulio in bed. Well, if it worked for Tulio and Shell, it should work for everybody, right? Yeah. Mark? Well, what seems to also work for Shell is just take the opportunity to watch the person you like get undressed. I mean, no that, problem with that. No problem there at going. all. Yeah, we've never had problems with somebody watching a person they were interested in get undressed. Nope. So normal. Good work, Shell. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. Seventh heaven on demand. Quite unusual nowadays. Virgin vistas undefiled. Minds and bodies running wild. In the man, behold the child On the trail we blaze